Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It gives me great pleasure to welcome G. Edward Griffin. And today we're going to be talking about one of his many books, The Creature from Jekyll Island, A Second Look at the Federal Reserve. Now, I want you to know more about him. G. Edward Griffin is a writer and a documentary film producer with many successful titles. He's also listed in Who's Who in America. And he's very well known for taking a topic and researching it and presenting it in clear terms that everybody can understand. He has talked about subjects such as archaeology, ancient earth history, the Federal Reserve System, international banking, terrorism, the history of taxation, U.S. foreign policy, the Supreme Court, the politics of cancer therapy in the United Nations. Not only has he written The Creature from Jekyll Island, he's written World Without Cancer, the Discovery of Noah's Ark, Moles in High Places, The Open Gates of Troy, No Place to Hide, The Capitalist Conspiracy, More Deadly Than War, The Grand Design, The Great Prison Break, and The Fearful Master. And along with Paul Wittenberg and Michael Murphy, he has produced a blockbuster documentary that you all should see, What in the World Are They Spring? Ladies and gentlemen, it is my great honor to welcome G. Edward Griffin to its rainmaking time. Good day. Well, thank you very much, Kim. That's a very kind introduction. It's all true. I can't imagine an American, having not read The Creature from Jekyll Island, having any clue what's going on in our economic conditions, in our financial system, in banking, in monetary understanding. And I can tell you that this was a great compliment when I felt I knew what was going on until I read this book. I hadn't had all the pieces put together quite the way you did it. It's a masterful job. It's almost 600-page book and worth every sentence of it. I thought we would begin today, Edward, by having you outline for the listener the distinctions between commodity money, receipt money, fiat money, and fractional reserve money to begin contextualizing your book. Oh, well, that's, uh, yeah, that's one of my favorite topics. Uh, normally, people want to jump right into the economy and what's going on today. But, uh, yeah, I appreciate that historic view because, it really, it's, uh, it, people don't understand what's happening today unless they understand what, it, what should be happening today. You know, you have to have some kind of a, uh, of a, uh, a measure, a template to hold it against. But, uh, as you pointed out, there are different kinds of money. The, the beginning of money is... Uh, well, even before money, you might uh, consider that we had barter. Barter is the, uh, I think everybody knows what that is. You just sort of exchange one thing for another. <clears throat> That's not really money, because money by proper definition is a medium of exchange. And the active word there is medium. So it's uh, money is something that um, is used in this transaction between two or more people, not for its own uh, self, but as a medium of a means of getting to something that they want. Now, that uh, that doesn't mean that the money itself should not have intrinsic value, which it should have. We'll talk about that in a minute. But the point is that with barter, there is no medium of exchange. It's just an exchange. So that's not really money. But then when you finally come to the next level, it's, uh, it's uh, commodity money, and that's uh, money which itself has value. And, uh, and people may take it not because they have a use for it immediately, but they know that it has value and somebody else will, uh, will accept it. Uh, and I think that probably the best uh, example of that throughout history has been uh, you know, food, uh, in particular uh, cattle. We know historically that uh, cattle have 
always been useful as as a medium of exchange. That's why people um, uh, have more cattle than they really can use. They they don't necessarily uh, uh, use a hundred head of cattle, but they're very happy to have a hundred cattle cattle because if they want to they want to uh, buy something of great value, they can always uh, use their cattle uh, to give to somebody else, and then they'll have an extra hundred head of cattle, and they can they can use it and so forth. Anyway, so cattle and wheat and, and food of all kinds is an excellent kind of commodity money. And then finally, uh, throughout history, um, people began to turn to other things as a commodity money that was a little more durable. Cows die, they get sick, and um, they get old, and so cattle are fine, and wheat is fine, but it rots and so forth, and it can get mold and so forth. So, so they began to use uh, metals as money when the um, the art of, of uh, refining metals was advanced sufficiently to make really good metals, and they were used initially for weapons of war, unfortunately, but that's one thing that historically man has always been willing to um, prize very highly is whatever gives him an advantage uh, over his um, his competitors. So in the beginning, they were simple uh, shields or, or spearheads and daggers and swords and that sort of thing. But because uh, metal was used in warfare and then later in jewelry and art, artistic things, uh, it was it was prized, and people were very happy to have more metal on hand than they could possibly ever use because they could exchange it. It was a medium of exchange. And that was just a natural evolution and this happened everywhere in the world, uh, in all societies and all cultures. And, of course, eventually the end of that process was when they began to uh, figure out how to use the metal into, uh, put it into little identified quantities of, um, of bars of metal or bullion quantities. And then finally they made them round and they called them coins. And that's how coins all began. So coins became little um, little bars of money. And people were very happy to exchange them, especially when they found out that they could refine gold. And silver had great value, great demand all over the world, and in small quantity. So then that's how gold coins came along. And um, and so then that's pretty easy to understand. And uh, gold and silver always throughout history became the, uh, the preferred type of commodity money because it has a certain characteristics that are ideal. First of all, it doesn't rot. You know, it doesn't gold. It doesn't even uh, rust. It's pretty, uh, pretty uh, permanent. It can be divided up into uh, smaller quantities. It can be recombined back into larger quantities without damaging it. It can be identified as to its purity and its weight very easily. You don't have to be a, a, a scientist or a very well educated person to understand that this is one ounce of gold or one ounce of silver because you can weigh it can compare it to standards. There are fairly, and always have been, fairly easy ways of testing the purity of gold, even without modern spectocracy or anything like that, or special machines, you know, to, to use the spectrogram to see what, how the color bars break out and all that sort of thing. You can just do it by putting a little acid on it, and if the acid won't dissolve it, it's gold, and uh, things like that. So, um, and... Uh, uh, so gold and silver have always had these these qualities that made it ideal. And uh, one ounce of gold is just the same as any other ounce of gold of the same purity and weight and other features like that. So gold became the supreme uh, form of money throughout history. 
And uh, of course, the next thing then came when when people wanted to uh, to start issuing certificates of deposit for their gold. They didn't want to carry all this gold and silver around with them, even though it has quite valuable that they had to worry about um, losing it or having a hole in the pocket. And, and uh, they didn't want to store it on their property because somebody might break in and steal it. So they uh, retained the services of um, usually the local jeweler in the community who dealt in gold and silver. And uh, those people, of course, had to have vaults of some kind, had to have storehouses, which they um, they guarded. They, they paid to have um, soldiers and, and guards on duty at all times. Uh, to protect the hoard of silver and gold against burglars. And so their neighbors came to them and said, look, uh, since you've got all of this uh, this warehouse and this security going on here, um, would you mind if you stored my gold also and I'll pay you a fee for it? And, of course, they said, sure. So that was the beginning, really, when you think about it, of uh, banking, because that's when people started to put their, their valuable money on deposit with somebody who was going to guard it for them. And so that was the that was quite a uh, an interesting development in the history of money because then the person who put the gold on deposit got a paper receipt, and that receipt said basically, "I have your gold. I have five ounces of your gold, and you can have it any time you want it." And um, and meanwhile, um, I'm guarding it for you, and I, I guarantee to give it to you any time you want it back. And um, that was like a, a demand deposit. A person could come and demand their money. And that was the beginning of paper money because people then held these pieces of paper and it had their name on it and all of that sort of thing so nobody else could use it. It was sort of like a check out of a checkbook. It had a payer and a payee and all of that sort of thing. Was it the same as a promise to pay? Yeah, it's a promise okay. to pay. Okay. It's a promise to not only pay, but a, a promise to return your gold. It's your gold. It's not that they're promising to pay you. They're promising right. to give it back to you. you know, a little different. And, uh, and so these papers, uh, pieces of paper, were just as good as gold, uh, if, as long as they didn't uh, lose them or have them lost in fire. A little bit of danger there. Um, and then they got tired of having to come back and pick up their gold in order to make a transaction. They have to bring their piece of paper back to the, um, to the jeweler and say, okay, I want my one ounce of gold or five ounces and so forth. Then they take the gold into the market and make the exchange, and then the person who got the gold would go back to the jeweler and say, okay, I'll, now I want to put it on deposit with you. It was like a little cumbersome. So they then this system evolved, and they, they stopped putting names on it. They just said to the bearer, whoever that is, to the bearer on demand, whoever holds this piece of paper will get it. And that was a big step forward because now that is really what paper money became. And as we know it today, everybody can use it. You don't have your name on it like a check. It's just whoever's got their hands on it, that's it. So that started to really help the economy. That really was a tremendous advance historically to economies because it enhanced and facilitated economic transactions. But now here's where the, here's where the, uh, the evil began to creep into it. The jewelers were sitting around looking at this stack of gold and silver in their warehouse, and they're thinking, you know, this stuff is just sitting there. And probably happened something like this. I'm going to guess that maybe the young, the youngest uh, or the, the son of the jeweler would say, Dad, you know, you're getting pretty old now. I'm going to take over this business pretty soon. You know, I got an idea. I think since this gold is just sitting here um, and uh, nobody comes in and asks for it, I mean, it just sits here. Maybe 2 or 3% of the people come in and ask for their gold at one time. 
but it comes back in again eventually. 97% of that gold just sits here all the time. Why don't we issue paper receipts for this gold more than what we actually have? And we can loan those paper receipts out just like money, and they'll pay us interest on it. And they'll never know the difference because they never come and ask for the gold anyway. And the old man probably said, no, no, we can't do that, son. So anyway, he probably died, and then the son took over and said, yeah, we're going to issue maybe 10% more receipts for this gold than we actually have. And nobody will know, and we'll make money on that. And that was the beginning of modern banking. And uh, so that worked fine. And then as the years go by, I'm imagining that probably his son said, you know, Dad, we're only loaning out uh, 10% of this money that we don't actually have. It's a good business. We're making good money on nothing here. Um, why don't we increase that to uh, 25% instead of 10%? It's very conservative. Only 3% asked for it. <laughs> and uh, the old man probably said, oh, no, we can't do that. That's not prudent. So he died, and the young son took over, and then they went to 25%. <laughs> and then the next generation went to 30 and 40 and 50%, and then 70%, 80%, 90%. And today we're at the stage where there is no percentage backing of it at all. And it's all uh, paper receipts, basically, but people have forgotten that those are supposed to be receipts for gold or silver. They've just gotten so used over the generations, so used to accepting paper by itself, that they've lost the understanding of how this all started and all how it should be. So is that what the fiat part is? That is exactly what fiat money is, um, with a little extra twist. The fiat money is uh, usually issued by or, or uh, enforced by the government, and you are required to accept it. Now, just plain old um, uh, money made out of nothing, a banknote that's just a promise to pay something that people don't have, if you know, there's nothing wrong with that as long as you're free to reject it. <laughs> and if some guy comes to me, if some banker says, here's a, here's a bank note, of course, we don't have any gold behind it, but uh, um, we want you to accept this as money, I can say, no, thank you. You've got to be crazy and walk away. But when governments do that, they pass what they call legal tender laws. But I want to ask you one thing before you go into that, not to divert us, but is it true that 13th century China was issuing fiat money? Oh, yes, that's very, very true. That's the, Can you actually, just share a little bit about that? I thought that was fascinating. Sure. Well, uh, the story is kind of interesting. It came to us from the, uh, the writings of Marco Polo, who uh, visited uh, China in that period, and he, he spoke about the, the Khan, or the ruler of China, had perfected the art. He called it the art of alchemy, uh, actually. And what they did is they, uh, they took the, um, the bast, uh, the little white, uh, or actually the, it was black, a black part of the... Um, uh, of the bark of a tree right underneath the, or on, on the outside, I've forgotten which, of the, of, the, uh, of the white part of the bark. In any event, they took this, um, this very thick and tough material, sort of like paper, but it was produced by trees, and they would uh, cut it into little squares, and then they would put their seals on it, and, their, and they would color it, and uh, people would... Um, impress their uh, their little ring seals on it and all the officials would in essence make it authentic you know like we have all the signatures and the seals and the serial numbers and everything on our money today that's what the Khan of china did in a way by impressing all these seals and um, and uh, writings on this bast and then they issued them in various denominations that related to silver and gold they were the, the exact equivalent of silver or gold coins in various sizes, and they would put those, those figures on the uh, paper money or the vast money. 
And then the king of China, or the ruler of China, issued a decree that the people had to accept it under pain of death. Well, naturally, they accepted it. And so anytime the Khan wanted more money, he just issued a decree to his um, administrators to go get some more bass, to cut it up, put these seals on it, put the numbers on it, and issue it. He could buy anything he wanted to. And, and everybody in the kingdom accepted it because they had to by law. And, um, and so that's how, yeah, that's how money, paper, fiat money actually began in 13th century China. And uh, it's not much different today. Um, in fact, on the basis of principle, there's no difference today. So uh, anyway, that is fiat money because the ruler required people to accept it uh, uh, by law. So is the concept of fiat by decree, legal yes. decree? Yes, that's, that's the exactly essence what, of it. By decree. Okay. So it's not only worthless with nothing behind it, but it also has this decree that you must accept it, and that's really the, the proper way of looking at fiat money. So anyway, when we get back to the different kinds of money, you see, we, first we had this, this commodity money, and then we had um, receipt money, which was perfectly good as long as there was gold and silver in the vault backing up that receipt. And then they started to nibble on it and uh, issue more receipts than there was gold, and that's where this uh, fractional reserve money started to take place, or fractional money. And that, of course, just always gives way. Every time in history they started to use fractional money, the fraction kept getting smaller and smaller and smaller until finally it was zero, and at that point the fractional money becomes fiat money. So there you have the different kinds of money, and it's, it's not very uh, difficult to understand, uh, it's an interesting and fascinating uh, part of history because we see over and over again uh, nations and societies making the same mistake. They go down the same path, apparently ignorant of what happened before in history in other places of the world. Or if they, if they do know it, they choose to ignore it because it's very profitable for those who are making the decisions and running the system. They figure, oh, well... So what? Another hundred years from now, maybe the system will fall apart. But right now, it's a pretty good game. Where does the legal tender issue come in? Well, that's the government decree that you must accept it. A legal okay. tender law is a law that requires everybody to accept the government money as legal tender. You must accept it for the payment of uh, debts, public and private. I think is how it's worded in our, in our own country. All nations that issue fiat money have uh, uh, public uh, have these legal tender laws. Because otherwise, as the, as the money becomes more and more worthless, people would say, I don't want to use this. I'll use something else. I'll start using some other nation's money, or I'll start using gold and silver coins again, or I'll start bartering, or I'll do something else to escape this plunder. And, uh, of course, governments don't want you to escape their plunder, and so they issue legal tender laws like we have here in this country. I'd like to cut into the center of everything and ask you at this point, and with what you've read and put together from the past of how we got here and how other civilizations have gotten there, do you think or feel that free markets ever existed? And do you think we live in a free market now? Are you talking about just this country? This country and maybe the world, whatever it is you want to respond to. Well, yeah, it's pretty much the same, really, either way. The, the free market on a world scale... Uh, never really existed uh, for very long. Every, all nations and systems start as a free market. And um, that is what I mean by that is people have no restrictions. They can do whatever they want to. They can accept gold or silver. They can accept cigarettes as money. They can barter uh, their time and their uh, 
their cattle. They can do whatever they want to uh, in the realm of, of uh, money. And uh, those uh, systems always exist in that form at the beginning of a society. But then by the time governments come along and start um, issuing laws and, and developing uh, soldiers and police to enforce those laws, the first thing they really focus on after they've secured the territory from uh, enemies, then the next thing is how to, uh, to start plundering their own people. And uh, they're, you know, they're citizens or subjects, whatever you want to call them. And the best way, of course, is to control the money system. And so always early on in, in society as it develops, the banks spring up and they start using the fractional reserve system that I described a moment ago. And then in order to make that uh, work for them, they go into partnership with uh, governments. And the governments make what they're doing legal. They start passing laws to uh, supposedly, it looks to the average person, that they're trying to regulate it on behalf of the people. So, you know, we have to be very careful that these big bad banks don't uh, you know, do bad things to the money system and, uh, and do bad things to the citizens. And so we, the government, will regulate these banks. And everybody says, oh, that's good, that's good. But what they don't realize is from the very beginning, the regulators go into partnership with the regulated. The banks are pretty smart, and the people that run these banks have a lot of money, and they they start influencing the regulators. Today we call that lobbying. And so they sort of get into bed. The regulators and the regulated become like a little partnership. This always happens. And so while the average gum-chewing public thinks that they're being protected, what's really happening is that they're being plundered by these two groups in partnership. And uh, so we've never really had a free market except in little specks of history. It, if I wrote about that in my book, a couple of places you know, around the world where maybe for 100 years there was really free banking and the banks uh, were uh, not regulated at all, except, and of course this is important, when we say regulated, we must talk about what kind of regulations. The only, uh, the only kind of regulations there should be for a bank or anybody else is to make sure that they're honest, to make sure that they don't cheat, to make sure that if they say they've got an ounce of gold on deposit for that little receipt they give you, that they really do, to make sure that when you come and demand your ounce of gold or silver, that they really give it to you. That's the extent of the regulation. But the way regulations usually are interpreted uh, uh, is that they say, well, uh, we'll allow the banks to cheat up to 70%, that sort of thing. And so that's how regulation usually works, um, people don't distinguish the difference. So they just think, well, the bank should be regulated, shouldn't they? Well, of course they should be, but at what point? So um, the answer to your question, I'm wondering a little bit, is that throughout history, uh, the minute society begins to get a little sophisticated and um, efficient, as they say in the marketplace, um, the free market starts to get nibbled by governments and banks, uh, by laws supposedly to protect the people, but which in reality uh, start to fatten uh, the pockets of the banks and the government officials. Can we talk about how it is that the Federal Reserve Act got passed? Because I still don't get it. How could that pass in Congress? Well, it was um, a long, involved process, and I think I'm I'm taking too long to answer your questions already, but this one is a good one. in a nutshell, what they did is they, the banks engineered the whole thing. The Federal Reserve Act 
was actually written by agents of the banks. That's the reason I call my book The Creature from Jekyll Island, is because the whole planning of this thing and the writing, drafting of the Federal Reserve Act was done, was done on Jekyll Island off the coast of Georgia, a private island in those days, owned completely by a small group of billionaires from New York, people like J.P. Morgan and William Rockefeller and their business associates. It was a private island for their families, a resort island. And they went there to, to really get out of public view while they did this important work. And uh, they drafted the Federal Reserve Act strictly for themselves. And what they created was a cartel. It was a, uh, as I mentioned a moment ago, it was a group of private banks that came together to regulate, so-called regulate their own industry, which means to make sure that it was very profitable and to make sure that, um, you know, the public is not going to interfere. And then they took it to Congress, and they had to sell Congress on the idea that this cartel agreement, which they had written, sell the Congress on the idea that it was a good thing and that it was really to protect the people. That's always the game. And uh, it took a little while, it took about three years for them to complete that sales uh, project, but they finally did. Congress bought into it, and probably not entirely just because they thought it was true, but also that it was very profitable for key members of, of Congress and the Senate. They, they were, you know, they were bribed, literally. They, they were um, pork-barreled in a way. Um, you know, they're given tremendous advantages. A lot of these guys were beholden to the banks. They had business ventures that depended on credit from these banks. Do you think they understood the Federal Reserve Act? I doubt it. Many of them read it. Uh, I doubt it. I think it pretty much in those days is what happens today when they have these bills. The legislators don't read them, or if they read them, they don't understand what they're reading. We get this false idea that when people go to Congress, they suddenly become good guys, that they're really there to help us, because we elected them, right? So they must be good guys. We wouldn't vote for somebody who had an ulterior motive. We wouldn't do that, so they must be good. We voted for them. It's stupid, because most, most of these politicians go there because they know that there's a killing to be made somehow. They know that once they're elected, everybody wants their favor, and they're willing to give them deals and make life very easy and profitable for them. That's always been true. And so to answer your question, I don't think most of them really cared that much. But uh, I also don't think that they understood exactly what they were doing. I don't think they understood banking. I don't think they understood fractional reserve banking. Or money. Or money. They just didn't understand. They're the politicians. What do they know? All they know is that my fellow countrymen, you elect me and I'll make life good for you. That's all they know. You know? <laughs> so they passed it, and uh, there was a lot of um, shenanigans that went on to get them to pass it. The public also had to be convinced that it was a good idea. And so these, these bankers who drafted the bill you know, did a lot of things that were very clever. First of all, they, uh, they uh, started to form little committees at the local level in almost every com- major community and city in the United States. They had employees of the banks or employees of the corporations which were beholden to the banks form little committees, as they were called, on behalf of uh, monetary reform. And these people who were nothing but just uh, paid uh, agents of the banks would form these little false organizations and they'd write letters to the editor and they'd put out posters and handbills and say, we're going to have a meeting and discuss this and this. And this was going on all over the country. And it looked like there was a grassroots movement on behalf of this banking reform, as they called it, always reform, you know. And so they did that. 
they uh, they made some grants to some of the largest universities in the country, which uh, were, of course, the universities are always in need of money, but especially in those days. And, and the ones that didn't have uh, economic departments or had very poorly funded economic departments, uh, the bankers would come along and make nice grants, a couple million here and a couple million there. And, of course, there were strings attached. They'd say, well, now, since we've given you all this money for this economics department, would you mind if we suggested a name or two of someone to uh, to chair the department? Oh, of course not. If you gave us all this money, who would, who do you suggest? And, of course, they'd, they'd suggest somebody who was very beholden to the banks, who really liked the idea of the Federal Reserve Cartel. And so they were named chairman of the economics department. And then, under the guise of academia, these guys would write papers and uh, give speeches from a very um, you know, scholarly point of view about how wonderful this new bill was going to be. So it made it look like it was coming from academia and it was all purchased like so many pounds of hamburger. Um, you know, and then some of these people started giving speeches and uh, interviews with uh, newspapers. And they, the bankers themselves, the guys that actually drafted the Federal Reserve Act, started to say, oh, I don't think this is going to be a good thing. This is not going to be good for business, you know. It's not going to be good for America. And the average uh, person would read that in the newspaper, and they'd say, hey, Maud, listen to this. These big bankers don't like this new Federal Reserve Act very much. Must be pretty good. You know? It's just, you know, don't throw me in the briar patch, is basically what they were saying. And through, uh, through ploys of this kind, uh, it, it took a couple of years, but they finally created the kind of climate, public opinion climate, and the political acceptance in Congress to, to make the passage of the Federal Reserve Act inevitable. Now, the Federal Reserve itself, am I correct? It's a private corporation with a board of governors with 12 regional Federal Reserve banks? Yes, uh, yes it is, and, but I will qualify that. It's not, a, it's not a completely private in the sense of a private corporation. Okay. Uh, but it, uh, it's closer to that than it is to a government agency. Actually, it's a hybrid organization. It has a little bit of a private corporation quality and a little bit of um, public um, agency quality, but it's neither of them. It's a, it's a hybrid, and what it really is is a partnership. It's a traditional partnership between uh, politicians and bankers. Like a private-public partnership? Uh, that's, that's a good analogy, yes, I would say so. And, um, yeah, that's, that's a good analogy. And um, but the thing is, it's it's not really subject to the will of the people. If you noticed in the hearings that we see on television lately, uh, sometimes the chairman of the Federal Reserve would go sit there, and he's being he's being grilled by various congressmen, and it looks like the congressmen are really in control because they're asking the questions, and the Federal Reserve chairman is sitting there squirming a little bit and giving answers. But if you listen carefully to the exchange, you realize that the the Federal Reserve chairman doesn't give a hoot about these guys. There was one very famous exchange that happened, I think it was last year. I saw it. Yeah, uh, Mr. Bernanke. Yeah, Bernanke, uh, and uh, (laughs) yeah, he was asked, where did the $700 billion go in, he said, in credit default swaps, and they said, to whom? He goes, I can't discuss that with you. I can't tell you that. He said, well, what do you mean you can't? No, it's it's just, no. I can't. I can't answer your question, and I'm not going to tell you who got the money. <laughs> well, there it was. If you're just listening to what's going on, the Federal Reserve System does not have to answer to Congress or anybody else. And people would say, "Well, the president appoints the, uh, you know, the Fed chairman, doesn't he?" Well, does he? Uh, that's a good question. When you really look at what happens, do you suppose that uh, the guy that's elected president 
ever selects the Federal Reserve chairman from a list of names of people he already knows? No, they never know these people. They select the chairman from a list that's provided to them by the banking committee or, more importantly, by the donors to their campaign. You know, when when a person gets the endorsement of the Republican Party or the Democrat Party, um, they don't just walk in and say, well, gee, thanks a lot, fellas. You know, there's a, there's a negotiation that goes on. They say, they say look, Mr. Brown, we, we like what you're doing here. Uh, we don't agree with everything that you're doing, but we like your basic policies. And we're thinking that we may throw our support behind you. And if we do that, you know, we can probably make you president. Now, if we do that, uh, would you be willing to agree that we can appoint the, or give you the names, and you make the appointment from the list we provide of the Secretary of the Treasury and the Secretary of Defense and the Secretary of State and the Chairman of the Federal Reserve System? And Mr. Brown says, uh, that's a no-brainer, sure. So actually, you see, the president does not appoint these people. Right. I think that a lot of us get that now. <laughs> yeah, these, these people appoint the president. <laughs> it's the other way around. I remember watching Greenspan in an interview where he said, we're not answerable to anybody. Right there. There was no hiding it. There was no shame about it. It was right out there. Oh, no. They play it as a virtue. They say that, you see, we're above politics, they say. Uh, well, which is true. They are above politics, but that doesn't mean that they're pure. Uh, the, being above politics, is, they can still be the mafia. They're above politics. Too. I want to read you something in your book on 218 on the Rothschild dynasty, which is a mind-blowing statement. And it's by Mayor Amschel Rothschild, who's quoted as saying, let me issue and control a nation's money, and I care not who writes the laws. Biographer Frederick Morton concluded that the Rothschild dynasty had conquered the world more thoroughly, more cunningly, and much more lastingly than all of the Caesars before or all the Hitlers after them. That isn't profound. Well, that is profound, and that is just exactly how profound this topic is. People do not realize the importance of money. They think in terms only of their own little lives, you know, boy, what, what I could do if I had more money. And they keep thinking in terms of buying, you know, bigger cars, better homes and more clothes and taking trips. And it's all consumption, consumption, consumption. What they don't realize that is on the world stage, the international financiers are looking at control over nations and over the world. All activities. Can we discuss Cecil Rhodes for a minute? I want to discuss a couple of the players that have really determined the landscape, the mechanisms, and the conditions that we're living in today, actually. And I was wondering if you could talk about Cecil Rhodes, his 19th century fortunes, and what came out of his work. Well, you, you hit right to the core of some very important issues here, Kim. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, you do. We're at the jugular. <laughs> you do. We're at the they... central nervous system here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, now, see, what we're talking about here is um, is very uh, controversial because there's, you cannot talk about this without using the word conspiracy, and that causes a knee-jerk reaction. I'm not worried. Let it roll. It's okay. But some of your listeners might say, oh, there's another conspiracy theorist talking about this and so forth. Well, um, actually, what... I have prepared a talk, which I've given a couple of times, and one of these days I think I'll probably release it on video. But anyway, the title of the talk is um, A Conspiratorial View of History 
as explained by the conspirators themselves. And the point of that is that when we speak of conspiracy, if we just restrict ourselves to what the conspirators say, and if they call it a conspiracy, and if they explain how they're going to do it, well then, well, what, what can you say? Is that a theory anymore? No, it's not a theory. It's a conspiracy history. And that's what we're really talking about. And so getting to your question, uh, people know the name Cecil Rhodes, uh, uh, probably more in Europe than they do here in the U.S., but uh, Cecil Rhodes is was the former commissioner of South Africa, one of the wealthiest men in the world. Um, this was at the turn of the last century. Um, he had acquired control over most of uh, South Africa's uh, mineral reserves, the diamond mines and the gold and everything, and amassed a huge fortune, probably one of the greatest fortunes the world has ever seen, even including today. Okay, that's historic fact. That's not theory. And um, But what they don't know uh, is that um, when he died and he wrote uh, a series of wills, I think there were seven altogether, um, the bulk, not, not the bulk, the totality of his fortune did not go to his family. It went to create a secret society, as he called it, a secret society. He actually called it that? Yeah, oh yeah I have called it that. And he, he, he spoke of its virtues. Uh, in fact, that uh, Again, this is as, as described by the conspirators themselves. Uh, Cecil Rhodes um, said in, in, uh, in a paper that uh, was later published, it was sitting in the uh, library in London, a British library for quite a few years, but it was in his own handwriting. And he's, he spoke about his affiliation with the Masonic lodges. And he said, you know, uh, it's a great wonder to me how... Uh, people, uh, the Masons that he was talking about, have so much power and influence in society, and they have all these rituals and all this secrecy. And he said, it doesn't seem to make any point. You know, when are they wasting their time going through all these motions for when there's no object to it? There's no goal for it. And he said, why don't we really put a goal behind this? Why don't we adopt the same secrecy and the same type of organization? And why don't we put some teeth in it and we'll, we'll create an organization that will literally conquer the world in secret? Now, he said that. And he, of course, he described it not as bluntly as I just did. He said, what we will do is spread the, um, the uh, culture and uh, government and command of the British Empire. He said, we, we have the greatest society, the greatest culture, the greatest level of education that the world has ever seen, and all these people of the world will benefit if we uh, control them. It's for, it's for their good that we must do this, he said. So um, whether they like it or want it or not, it's really for their good. It's uh, noblesse, noblesse. We have to do this, and somebody has to do it, so it's us. And therefore, let's create a secret organization and we'll conquer in this way, quietly, not with armies, but we'll just take over the governments, we'll take over the financial systems, we'll control the media, we'll control the educational system. I mean, this is all spelled out. This is not me speaking. These are the, the people that, uh, that actually carried it out, writing about these things. And how do we know? Well, from their own documents. They're now right in the public record. You're not going to see any of them uh, on CNN or, or find, uh, you know, the anything like this in the textbooks in our schools, because our schools are run by the very organization that Cecil Rhodes created. And, uh, and how do we know this? Well, speaking of his will, uh, there was a guy by the name of um, Stead, William Stead, who was the executor of the Cecil Rhodes estate. He's the guy that executed the wills, and he wrote a book on the wills. 
it's not, it's not exactly a bestseller, but you can you can get it. Really? Yeah. And uh, he he describes all these things. He said Mr. Rhodes wanted to create an organization modeled somewhat after the Jesuit Society because of its power and its its far-reaching control and its uh, its secrecy. And uh, he said that what Mr. Rhodes wanted to create was a dynasty. Those are the words that he used: an international dynasty, more like a knighthood. And you know, this sort of thing. Well, did he do it? Of course he did. And you follow the history through. There was a, a college professor at Georgetown University. Carol Quigley. Carol Quigley, yeah. yeah. And he, he wrote the, um, the definitive history books on this secret society. Is that Tragedy and Hope? That's Tragedy and Hope is the better known one of them. And the other one is the, Ang- Ang- uh, let's see, the Anglo-establishment, uh, Anglo-American establishment. Two books written about the history of this organization, and was he qualified to write about it? He said yes. He, in his introduction, he said, I was invited by this group to examine their private papers. He said, I hadn't, I said, I liked the organization. I thought it was wonderful. I had no aversion to it or its goals. He said, the only objection I have is that it, it wished to remain secret. He said, I think by now they've done so much that the world needs to know about it. And so therefore he's writing those books. So that's Carol Quigley. And we should know, for example, that um, Carol Quigley was the professor that taught William Clinton at Georgetown University. I think Bill Clinton loved his book. He spoke about it a lot. Oh, yeah. Clinton was a really a favorite student of Quigley. And when when Clinton accepted the nomination of the Democrat Party for president, in his speech, he gave honorable mention to Professor Quigley and thanked him for all the profound influence he had on him. And so that tells you a lot right there. Clinton was telling the world, anybody that knew about Carol Quigley and what Quigley had written, he was saying, I approve totally of Quigley. And therefore, he was saying, I am now in the service of the secret society. And he wanted the world, for those who could understand it, he wanted them to know. And, of course, Clinton was a Rhodes Scholar. He was selected by... Isn't Obama a Rhodes Scholar, too? I cannot say yes to that. I can't remember if I heard he was or not. I don't remember. I have not heard. It doesn't ring true to me. A lot of them are, though. Oh, a lot of them are, yeah. There's no question about that. So anyway, we could go on and on and on and on. But the point, now let's get down to something pertaining to today. Uh, This secret society that Rhodes created evolved um, around the world into different groups in each country. The Royal Institute for International Affairs is what they call it in England, and all of the um, former British dependencies, they all have the same name, Royal Institute for International Affairs. And um, when I say secret, by the way, I must just take a step backward. Rhodes said that when he formed his organization, he wanted to follow a certain form, and it's called Rings Within Rings Within Rings. And that uh, is, is what he called it, and that's what it's been called throughout history, because the the formula for this was actually created by Adam Weishaupt uh, when he created the Illuminati. Now, everybody knows the Illuminati was um, was raided, and the records were discovered, and everything about it is now very well known, because the books are in the library at, uh, in England, and it's been you know written and spread around the world. Um, but And everybody thought, well, the Illuminati was destroyed, some people say it went underground and merely came up in other forms. I don't care which view you take. I do know that when um, when Cecil Rhodes formed his secret 
society, he chose exactly the same structure that Adam Weishaupt described, which is rings within rings within rings. And by that, they both meant that in the center, there was a group of maybe one, two, or three people which controlled the whole structure. And then they created around them a ring of members in another organization, which appeared to be completely independent, and most of the members of that ring did not know that they were being led by an inner group of three. And so maybe we got a group of 12 or 14 in this outer ring. And then they, in turn, created another ring around them of perhaps a couple of hundred members, and those couple of hundred didn't know that they were being controlled by the, by the 12 or the 14. And then that one created another ring around it, which might have several thousand members, and they didn't know that they were being controlled by a small, and so forth. Those are rings within rings, and it was a way they could conceal the absolute control of a large organization from public view. Well, so when Cecil Rhodes created that third ring out, third ring out, they called it the um, Royal Institute for International Affairs. And that's the first ring where it begins to look public, where you can actually go on the Internet, you can find the name, and you can see who the members are. And um, there are uh, usually a couple of thousand members in in these roundtables, or what they call them, roundtables, an inside word. Uh, But it's one of the larger uh, third ring out structures of the secret uh, society. And uh, and so, as I said, in most of the countries, it's called the Royal Institute for International Affairs. But in the United States, the same thing happened, but they didn't call it that because the word royal didn't go over too well in the United States. They gave it a different name. They called it the Council on Foreign Relations. The same group, except in this country, it's the Council on Foreign Relations. And the chief sponsor and director of it when it was first created here was J.P. Morgan. Okay. And this is all in. This is all coming from the the books and records of the people themselves. This is not a conspiracy theorist speaking. These are the conspirators speaking and boasting of how they did it. And so now the Council on Foreign Relations. We here's an organization that's a, it's got about four thousand people and it's very visible. But we don't know really what goes on. It's what they call semi-secret. They have meetings periodically in New York, and about I'm going to say seventy to eighty percent of the of the real rulers of America, when I, by that I mean presidents of the United States, Supreme Court members, um, uh, chairman of the Federal Reserve, secretary of state, secretary of defense, head of the CIA, head of the FBI, etc. All of the people that really move and shake this country, 70 to 80 percent of them are members of the Council on Foreign Relations. I think Obama is a member of the Council on Foreign no, Relations, No, I don't too. think so. But he has spoken there. You see, nobody gets the, the nod from the CFR. The CFR really selects the president. Uh, and they all have to go and they speak at the CFR. You've got video. You can go on the Internet and see the video of uh, Obama speaking at the CFR. You can see a video of uh, Hillary Clinton speaking at the CFR. They all have to go there and speak so that the members can evaluate them and ask them questions. What would you do under this circumstance? What would you do under this? And so forth. And if they pass the test, then they get the nod, and then they, you know, they're viable candidates. That's how it works. So, you know, you asked me to talk about Cecil Rhodes. Sure. Cecil Rhodes left quite a, quite a legacy. and uh, his, It's still uh, going on. Oh, it's, going, it's stronger it's now growing. than ever. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, it's still going on. Is it true that J.P. Morgan was an agent for the Rothschilds and that John D. Rockefeller really didn't like him 
and then they eventually did some deals together, but there was competition early on. Well, I, I don't know about the John D. Rockefeller not liking him. John D. Rockefeller was not welcomed by J.P. Morgan, is what I read. Yeah, well, I, I think that probably was true because they were competitors, but uh, by the time they created the cartel, the banking cartel called the Federal Reserve System, they were working jointly because the Rockefeller banks and um, the, the Morgan banks were all joined together at the Federal Reserve. See, that was, that was the reason for a cartel, is to bring competing components together. So they stop competing and start working together and provide a unified front against the, you know, the public. But I can say with absolute authority that J.P. Morgan was an agent for the Rothschild banks. No question about it. And uh, all the historians of, of Morgan uh, have written about that. Um, Morgan, of course, uh, could not have survived the Great Depression in the United States without money from uh, the Rothschilds and the Bank of England when all the other banks and lending houses in the United States were folding. Uh, Morgan was able to get uh, unlimited supplies of, of money and credit from uh, the Rothschild group, and that's the only reason Morgan suddenly moved way ahead of the pack and became a dominant force when all the others were falling behind. And, uh, yeah, Morgan was, a, was an agent, no question about it. Uh, maybe that's too strong a word, saying agent, but he was kind of a... Instrument? A front or something like that. A couple other things I want to talk about with you. One is the Mondrake mechanism. Now, I know that this gets into incredible detail about the function of the machine um, having to do with um, not only fiat money but fractional reserve lending. And I wanted to find out why people talk about using gold or silver as money, there's this limited supply argument. Well, let's start with that one. Okay. Uh, I'm a a gold bug, too. I think that uh, everybody should be a gold bug in the sense that if you want to... uh, if, if you want to preserve the value of, of your work, if you, in other words, if you have saved some, some money and you want what you've saved to be worth something 10 or 20 years down the line, in other words, if you really want to save it, you've got to put it into something other than national currencies because national currencies all around the world are constantly losing their value by the, by the minute, especially here in the United States right now. You know, today, a um, dollar because of this Federal Reserve game, a dollar will buy what, uh, in 1913, when the Federal Reserve system was created, it would cost three cents. So, you know, a, th- a three-cent uh, uh, package of gum in those days, I guess today, costs a dollar. The same gum. So what happened? Did the gum get more expensive? Not really. It's just that the dollar became more worthless. The thing that held its value was the gum. Um, but the dollar lost its value, and that's the trick of inflation, of course. So if, you, if you're saving, uh, you work very hard, and you put, uh, say, 5 or 10% of your savings aside every week or every month, and you say, boy, this is what I need when I want to retire or when I want to quit working someday and travel around the world or whatever you want to do with it, and you put that money aside, you don't want to put it somewhere where it's losing its value at that rate because by the time you do retire, it would be worth three cents again. So, um, yeah, if you want to protect your, your, the worth of what you've saved, you've got to put it into something other than national currencies. And I can't think of anything better than gold or silver. The thing is, though, that there is this argument that sounds reasonable that there's not enough quantity of gold and silver to transact inside of. 
So what do you propose in terms of how we function? Well, to me, that does not sound reasonable because I think anybody that says that does not realize that the value of gold, one of the values of gold, is that it is limited in supply. I mean, if you keep expanding the supply of gold, then it becomes you're doing the same thing as with expanding the supply of paper money. The value of gold is that it is limited. And the more limited something is, the more valuable it is, and especially in terms of money. You could base a monetary system on, uh, on copper or nickel or silver or gold or platinum or palladium, and it would work just as well with any of them, except that if you, <coughs> excuse me, if you use one of the more common metals like copper, well, it would take a huge amount of it to have any value. And, and so you want something in the middle that is limited, but not that limited. I totally get what you're saying, but do you think there's enough to transact in? Like, Oh, absolutely. If you could do a revamp right now, we know you'd end the Fed. I get that. And there's other types of major reform that you would do. But in terms of instituting a metals transaction universe, what would you do? I would get the government out of it. That's all you have to do and let the free market take over. The free market is, uh, is super intelligent. It's the, the free interaction of tens of millions of people around the world doing what they think is best for them. And there's, that will automatically adjust. And let me apply that to the issue of there's not enough gold, as they say. That is absolutely untrue. There is more gold on this planet than you can possibly imagine. Uh, 99.99999% of it is still in the ground and in the oceans. It's just a question of how hard do you want to work to get it out? And as the demand for gold goes up and you can buy more and more with it, like it's happening now, why, all of a sudden it becomes more interesting to work pretty hard to get it out of the ground. And so the supply starts to expand. I can speak from experience on that because a few years ago I, I uh, got intrigued by a little gold mine up in um, Montana and I decided to invest in it. And I went up there and I was poking around listening to some of the people, the local people, and the message I got was, yeah, these mines have been sitting around here pretty much useless for 20 or 30 years because the price of gold had been pushed down. But now that the price of gold is going up, why, there are miners all over these hills and they're digging it out <laughs> and so forth. This is how it works, you see. When the price of gold goes up, the miners go into the field and start digging it out. The quantity expands, and the price comes back down again because, you know, it's supply and demand. It's a very simple law. They don't teach it anymore in school, but it's a simple law. But what do you think about the people in the commodities markets that say that the commodities markets are constantly being manipulated? They're shorting markets and shorting different types of food products and shorting stocks and ETFs and shorting the actual metals themselves. Yeah. They could not do any of that without government protection. That's the bottom line. Okay. They get away with that because they're protected by the government uh, and in, in various ways. That, see, that whole, that whole market, that whole uh, commodities market exchange. is, is yeah. supposedly uh, regulated. There's that word again. And people think it's regulated for the protection of the consumer, and that's not true. It's regulated so that these uh, speculators can, can pull that game off, you see. 
uh, yeah, it's true. There is a lot of manipulation, but even that cannot go on forever. Right now, for example, the supply of the world's uh, supply of silver has been going down, down, down every month. I've been watching it for years, and it's now almost to the point where the demand for the use of silver is, of course, bigger than the production of silver. Right, the above-the-ground supply, yeah, correct? The above-the-ground yeah. supply. And that reserve has been dwindling, dwindling, dwindling. So now I don't know what it is, but it's almost invisible. So that means they can't play that game uh, much longer. The, the free market, or as they say, the gods of the copybook headings, always return. And when that happens, you know, the the game is over for the speculators, and so they go out of business. That's what's happening with some of these banks. They're being called upon to deliver on their false promises, and they can't. And so they go to government, and they say, hey, bail us out. We're going to go bankrupt. You don't want us to go bankrupt, do you? That's bad for America. And so the Congress steps in and says, yeah, we'll vote you another $100 billion. So the taxpayers cough it up, you see. That's the game. If the government would just stay out of it and let these bullion banks who are cheating, let them fail, then the market would take over and everything would be fine. But right now, the crooks are protected by government. And that's the whole message I'm trying to deliver here. The free market will take care of it. But right now, there's nobody in Washington that's the least bit interested in a free market. Because under those conditions, they don't have control over people or over industry. And they don't make profits. So, that's the game. And... uh, there's one more thing. I'm glad you brought this up because some people argue that, well, who would want to base a money system on, on gold? Because, you know, the bankers own it all, and it's just playing right into their hands. They've got all the gold. Well, that's not true. Uh, they don't have but a small percentage of it, but it's even more than that. Uh, the bankers want to own the gold as much as they can for the same reason that I want to own gold as much as I can because it's a means of protecting the value of uh, whatever money I have, and uh, it's smart. But that doesn't mean they want to base a money system on gold. There's a difference between holding gold as a means of preserving your wealth and basing a money system on gold. Banks make money when they loan money because they collect interest on this thing. Okay, so if you limit the amount of money that banks can loan, then you're limiting the amount of interest that they can charge, and you're limiting their profits. So if the only money they can loan is what already exists in the form of gold or silver in their vaults, boy, are they cut off a lot. They can't just create millions or billions or trillions of dollars like they're doing now and loaning it to the government and collecting interest on it because they don't have it. Do you think that in our modern world, credit is a good thing or a bad thing at this point? I think I know the answer, but I want to hear you. Well, I think credit is a good thing if, okay. it, if, it's, uh, if it's based on a free market principle. Credit is nothing wrong with credit, but it's when – what we have now is they call it credit, but it's not. It's, it's not credit at all. It's uh, – what is it? It's um, – It's uncollateralized credit. Uncollateralized credit. And even that is okay up to very small amounts of you know, prudent amount, but it's uh, it's counterfeit. That's what it is. It's not credit. It's counterfeit. That's the word I'm looking for. They're actually creating this money. They're not lending money uh, based on credit. They're creating it out of nothing. Right, and they're adding to the money supply. Exactly. And I understand if the M3 or the money supply is severely expanded, this will cause inflation. 
Yes, that's true. You say that inflation is a hidden tax. Why? Well, yeah, when the money supply expands at a rate faster than the expansion of goods and services, now you have this disparity, and it's uh, the old uh, issue of supply and demand kicks in, and if the supply of money just expands faster, then that means its, it's, uh, its value goes down. For example, if you, it's, I, like, I like to use the, um, the soup pot analogy. Imagine we get this big pot of soup here, and that's the money supply. And the money supply is really determined by the number of, let's, let's call it bean soup. So the number of beans in that pot of soup. Let's say there's a million beans in that pot of soup. So that's, that's the value of that money supply. Now, a politician comes along and says, well, we don't have enough money. This economy needs more money. So they decide to uh, get a uh, hose and they start pouring water into the pot. And they double the, the quantity of the, the liquid in the pot. So look, we just doubled the water supply. I mean, doubled the money supply. Our bean soup, now we've got twice as much bean soup. Well, it's true. They do have twice as much bean soup, but they still got the same number of beans. So the, the nourishment value of the soup, the real value of the soup hasn't changed. Just the quantity of the, of the, uh, the volume of it. And so if people want to stay alive on this bean soup, they have to eat twice as many bowls of it as they did before. So they don't gain anything at all. That's a great analogy. And uh, so what they're really doing is just expanding the, the money supply by increasing the volume of the water, but not the beans. So, Edward, what do you propose to catalyze more trade? If we don't have the available credit, which is really fiat credit, it's not really credit, it's, what did you say? Well, it's uh, counterfeit. It's counterfeit. How do we expand trade? Right now, a lot of people can't even get loans for their cars, even though the cars function as a form of collateral. And a lot of people can't get trade lines. A lot of the banks are not allowing credit to be issued. Won't that impact commerce for the worse on one hand, but it will prevent the exploitation of this counterfeiting on the other? Well, I think what you said is true, but hidden behind that issue is the larger issue, which is, are we in charge of that? Are we supposed to manipulate the market or set the parameters up so that this works better than that? Are we so wise? Are we so powerful? Are, are we to be trusted with such power? I say no. I, first of all, I don't think anybody is smart enough to figure out all of those pros and cons and those conflicting uh, pressures. What we should do is just step back and let the free market take over. And you say, well, people can't uh, get a loan on their cars today. The answer is, well, in a free market, why can't they get a loan on their car? And that's because, well, uh, the interest rates are automatically suppressed too low. So the lenders don't want to lend it because they can't make enough money on it. And why is, why is the interest rate so low? Well, it's because uh, the Federal Reserve System, in partnership with the government, has decreed that the interest rates be low right now in order to bolster the economy. Well, instead of having just the opposite effect, you see. So in other words, they made a mistake. These wise men are always figuring things out and doing it wrong. So get the government out of it. Let the interest rates go up. Oh, well, the interest rates went up. That means fewer people will want loans. Okay, fewer people should want loans. Well, maybe they can't pay that much for the car. 
they won't sell as many cars. Okay, let the free market determine they may be, maybe they need to produce fewer cars, or maybe they need to lower their profit margins, or maybe they need to start paying lower wages to their employees. Well, the employees won't like that because they're, you know, the wages now are fixed by law, and they, they, they can't live on that little money. Well, of course, so therefore they don't have jobs and so forth. You see, it's just a never-ending thing. The, the more you try and regulate the, the economy or the money system, uh, one decision leads to two more that you have to make in order to cover the problems with the first decision. And you'll never figure it out, and it'll always wind up like it's winding up today, which is in total chaos. And so I say that the answer to all of these things is to let the free market take over. And now there will be some major adjustments, probably a lot of chaos, a lot of suffering, gnashing of teeth. But it will recover, and when it does, it will be a beautiful system that will work flawlessly or close to it. But if we don't do that, there will be a lot of suffering and gnashing of teeth also, as there is now, and the system will just continue to, to dip until the point we have no system at all. We'll be living basically in a totalitarian regime, a command economy, where the only way you can buy or make or sell anything is with government permission. It's getting closer and closer in terms of the mechanisms for impacting a scenario that could look like that. Yeah, that's where we're headed. And we only we have to go one of two directions. You can't sit in the middle. We're either going to totalitarianism or we're going to the free market. Do you want to talk about the Mondrake mechanism, or is it too complicated? Well, it's not complicated. It's uh, simple enough. In fact, we kind of did touch on it before, but the Mandrake mechanism is the phrase I, I give to the method by which the money comes into existence in most of the world today, certainly in the United States. But the essence of it is through debt. The essence of it is through debt, yes. And, or even deeper than that, it's through counterfeit. That's, you know, I still think that's the better word. But technically it is through debt, and it's the debt process by which they can counterfeit. But anyway, here's how it works. Um, I mentioned before, Kim, that uh, the Federal Reserve System is really a, it's not a private organization, it's not a government agency, it's a, it's a hybrid group, it's a, you know, it's a cartel uh, in partnership with the federal government. But there are these two elements. It's a partnership, government and banks. And so they each have to benefit somewhat, or they wouldn't be in this uh, partnership. So let's see how the government benefits first, and then we'll look and see how the banks benefit from this. The, the government benefits because under this system, they can get any amount of money they want at any time without having to go to the taxpayers directly, without having to raise the... Uh, the obvious taxes. As I mentioned before, the, the result of this is inflation, which is an indirect tax, but people don't see that. They don't realize that uh, inflation is a tax, or they don't realize who's doing it to them, so they just suffer it through. Whereas if they got a tax bill in the mail, there'd be a revolution. So that's why governments do not like to raise taxes, uh, and they like the, the mandrake mechanism. So here's how that works. Let's say the government is spending another billion dollars today that it doesn't have. Well, how does it get it? It tries to borrow it from uh, investors. You and me will buy bonds or notes or bills and so forth, treasury bonds. Or they'll sell these bonds to other governments or to central banks or to, to uh, in investment uh, companies, uh, you know, retirement plans and that kind of thing. And that's how most of the money that the government borrows traditionally has come from. 
But now, especially now, that source is drying up. Nobody wants to lend anymore to the federal government because they're really beginning to wonder if they'll ever get paid back in anything that's worth anything because the dollar is losing its value so quickly. Why would you lend $1,000 now to the federal government expecting to get back $1,020 uh, in a year when when you do get it back, it'll only be worth uh, $322, you see. So that's why people are increasingly uh, resisting the idea of lending money to the government. So what does the government do? They go down the street to the Federal Reserve Building, they walk in, they, let's say the Treasury official walks in, he, and, the, and the Federal Reserve officer says, good, good day, sir, uh, what can we do for you? And the Treasury official says, well, we'd like to another, uh, borrow another uh, trillion or billion dollars today. The Federal Reserve says, no problem. He opens up the big checkbook. Of course, it's all done on computers, but let's just imagine he's got this big checkbook. He says, here's your check to the United States government for $1 billion, and he signs it. Thank you very much. And they call it a loan. And the government takes it and deposits it into its checking account. And now it's got another billion dollars to keep going. The question is, where did that billion dollars come from? Where did the Federal Reserve System get it? Did they have any deposits? No. Did they have it anywhere? No. What they did is they simply created it out of thin air when they wrote that check. And then they pretended to loan it to the government when actually all they did was they just they created it and gave it to the government, and the government agreed to pay them interest on it. So it's counterfeit that becomes a debt that they get to write off on their books. Yeah, that's right. The government As says, a liability. Yeah, the government says, we'll pay it back to you. So that makes it an IOU, and uh, that makes it a debt, and the bank can put it on its books as an asset. If, if, the, you know, if the bank loans money... So it's put on as an asset, not a liability? Uh, well... No, it's okay. the government has the liability. Right. <laughs> well, actually, when you put it in, when you put any transaction into your books, you have to go on both sides of the ledger, a debit and a credit. So yes, they balance each other. The the uh, this gets a little complicated, but the Federal Reserve says um, this is an asset because the government's going to pay it back to us uh, plus interest. But they also say it's a uh, it's a liability because um, if they don't pay us back, uh, well. We ha we've lost something, you see. We're at risk. So it's a liability. What happens if they don't pay us back? And uh, so it gets, it's just an accounting trick is all it is, but it does have to go on both sides of the, uh, of the ledger. But anyway, basically, it's, uh, the Fed considers it as an asset, and the uh, government considers it as a liability. And uh, so anyway, the point is that the money was created out of nothing, and now the government can spend that money. So let's follow... Um, before I go there, let's just say, why would the government be interested in this? Well, why not? Otherwise, uh, what happens if people don't want to lend the government money this month? Uh, they'd have to increase interest rates up, 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 until finally they could lure people out and lend them the money. Interest rates would go way, way up. But this way, whatever the amount of money that uh, is a shortfall, the government's not getting it from the private sector, and they, they still need another trillion dollars, they can go to the Federal Reserve System, and by agreement, the Fed, as their partner, will create that money out of nothing. For example, we saw starting in 2008 through 2009, um, the, uh, the government needs these billions and trillions of dollars to bail out the banks and bail out 
General Motors and to send money overseas to other banks and all of these things and to, you know, to fund this government program and fight the war in the Middle East. Trillions and trillions of dollars. Where does that money come from? Well, I can tell you, they're not getting it just from selling government bonds. They're getting it mostly from the Federal Reserve, which just creates it out of nothing. That's why when when the votes come up in Congress and and they said, well, we need a – how many trillion was that again? Well, let's see, call over – oh, they said they thought it was maybe 70 trillion or whatever. And it, But is that a solid figure? They say, I don't know. Who cares? Just vote for it. <laughs> That's really how it works. Who, care, who cares what it costs? Because they don't need the money anyway. The Federal Reserve is going to create it. Whatever is needed, you just be created a thin air. See, this is how it works. So really, none of our money touches the government like the money that's created by the Federal Reserve that goes to the government. No, it's all created by the Fed. That's the, yeah. that's the point. It's okay. all created by the Fed. In other words, our taxes are minuscule compared to what the Federal Reserve creates exactly. for the government. Our direct taxes yes. are minuscule. Yes. The indirect tax is called inflation, which we haven't yet seen because a lot of this is still in the pipeline. It's rattling down the pipe, and when it comes out the other end and all that money really floods into the economy, which most of it hasn't yet, but it's going to. It's coming down the pipe, and when it finally bursts out the end of that pipe and goes into the economy and starts competing with all the other dollars that are already there, then you're going to see food prices and gasoline prices and education prices and everything just go through the roof. And that's where the tax will hit us, the indirect tax called inflation. That's why we'll pay for it in that fashion. Can you answer one last thing? This is really important. Can you explain the role of the Treasury as it was created in the beginning and where it is now? Oh, well, I, that's an interesting question. Comparing it uh, then and now, I can tell you that... I mean, to in, the best of your ability. Well, to the best. Thank you for that, because that's. Uh, I'm a little bit... Uh, uncertain as to how I would make a comparison. I, really, but I, I do know yeah. in basics the comparison is quite simple, that in the beginning the Treasury was responsible for regulating and issuing the nation's money. But you see, in the beginning, the nation's money was gold and silver coin. And so it was the Treasury acted more or less like um, weights and measures department, you know, where the government might be called upon to uh, to standardize what is a pound, what is a foot, you know, any weight or measure that people need so they can all work on the same scale without uh, confusion. Nobody will be cheated. They did the same thing with money. What is a dollar? A dollar will be a certain quantity of silver or gold. So in the beginning, the Treasury was responsible for setting the value or the measurement of money as ounces. And that was a very important function and necessary function. And they were also responsible for operating the mints, which created the coins that represented that value of, of silver or gold. Now today, let's jump ahead. The Treasury doesn't do any of that. Uh, the Treasury is actually more responsible than anybody in breaking down the value, the measurement value. What is a dollar today? Um, well, compare it to a dollar 10 years ago. What's, is, are they the same? No. What is the value? There is none. See, they've broken the, the description of a dollar away from any concept of value. It's just a dollar. A dollar is a dollar. And you know, if, 
that's it. So I wonder what their relationship is to the Federal Reserve today. Well, the relationship to the Federal Reserve is that the uh, the Treasury actually uh, stamps the coins or mints the coins and prints the money, the currency. But they do so at the request of the Federal Reserve System. Okay, so really they're an instrument for yeah. the Federal yeah. Reserve System. Yeah. Okay. The Federal, the Federal Reserve contracts with them to create the money that's in circulation. The money that's in circulation is a small percentage of the total. Most of it, by far, is checkbook money or computer money. Yes. It never materializes at all, except as uh, digits and, and little spots of ink on a piece of paper. You're a fascinating man to talk with, and your <laughs> book is marvelous, very oh, well, informative. You, so many of your books and your works are so informative, and I really appreciate all the work that you've done for humanity to help live in a better society and a just society. And I hope you never reach the day where you're so distraught and you're so discouraged that you wish you had never been involved in any of it. Oh, well, that'll never happen. I've been, I've been in the trenches too long for that. Yeah. And, um, but I have great, uh, great hope for the future, not the immediate future. The short term looks very, very dark. Yes. But the long term looks bright to me because we created an organization called Freedom Force International, and, and we really think that we've got the solution of how to turn this around for the next generation. And uh, we're laying the, the groundwork now. Very important. It, this, changes like this don't just happen overnight. Right. It'll, it'll right. take a generation or two. But we're on the path already. And I urge anybody that wants to be involved in any of that to look us up on the, on the website. It's uh, www.freedomforceinternational.org. It is a great pleasure and an honor to be speaking with you. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking with, learning from, and listening to G. Edward Griffin, the author of The Creature from Jekyll Island, A Second Look at the Federal Reserve. He can also be reached by going to realityzone.com. G. Edward Griffin, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Bye. It's a pleasure.